Thank you for joining me on YRF, Your Rural Frequency Podcast. I am honored you're spending this time with me and my guest. It has been too long since last on the air. Uh, I just found that interviewing guests with distance and technology between us just isn't an effective way for me to fully grasp the, the levity of our conversation or react with genuine emotion. I promised early on that I'd remain authentic and I just don't have the skill to fully immerse myself in a guest story if not directly in front of them. I think we're all kind of realizing the importance of human connection and communication through all of this. Do you ever wonder if there's an alternative strategy to deal with your stress, anxiety, traumatic events you may have experienced? Do you know or think you suffer from ADD, ADHD, PTSD, or more commonly depression? My guest today has incredible insight on an approach that has been around for decades, but just recently has come back as a viable way of life of harmony and peace, at least to the levels that are tolerable for you and others. And when I mean tolerable, I mean allowing yourself to live a values-driven lifestyle without all of the neuroses, history, and quote-unquote baggage getting in the way. Dr. Brian Campbell is a neuropsychologist in Spokane, and he specializes in behavioral and cognitive disorders and therapy. We took necessary precautions in recording this, and in doing so, we set up a studio outside Brian's house, and it was, it was a beautiful day. Um, you, you'll hear background noise, cars passing, birds chirping, but ultimately, it, it added to our experience together, and, and we realized just how different our day-to-day operations have truly become. I want to stress to you, The content we cover is super robust, and we drill down pretty damn deep. So if you have any questions or comments about what we cover, reach out to me. I'd love to hear your take on it, um, your experience as well. Also, please share this with any and all that you think may benefit or at least find it interesting. Just when you think no one else is like you or suffering from similar mental or physical distress, take a listen to my conversation with Dr. Brian Campbell. I was looking for a way to escape material things. I was looking to lose control. Well, as far as uh, addressing depression, we have been kind of in a state of a lack of movement for decades uh, since the second generation antidepressants came out. And because there tends to be a research bias in what is reported, the efficacy of those antidepressants was probably higher than when we look at both the negative outcomes and the positive outcomes. So part of the problem is the bias. If you have positive outcomes, you get published. If you don't, you don't get published. So we really think that the second generation antidepressants may be effective for only 30 to 40% of the population. Oh, my gosh. The assumption being, which without data is often incorrect, that what the body needs or the brain needs is serotonin. And uh, emotional well-being is, is far more complicated than serotonin alone, and the antidepressants have a variety of side effects that often stand in the way of a person wanting to continue those uh, medications. They can be sedating uh, we could add a problem by trying to subtract a problem with weight gain. It can create sexual dysfunction. And those are three pretty critical factors that cause people to be less than enthusiastic about those medications. <laughs> and they take a long time before they may be able to work. The world of depression 
and the treatment with second-generation antidepressants is not impressive. People have been reaching out and looking at different treatment protocols you know, for severe depression, electroconvulsive shock therapy, which induces a small seizure in the brain, uh, often is kind of like resetting uh, the computer. And you go back to baseline for, for some who have not been responsive to other treatment approaches will come back um, oh. with uh, a series of electroconvulsive shock treatments, typically in a hospital uh, administered by a psychiatrist and under safety protocols with um, uh, muscle relaxants and, and other things to just to stabilize the body when it goes through that seizure. Sure. Side effects can be amnesia. You know, for some, it's, it works. Right. Now, a little bit less uh, intensive is transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is like a, a coil that is put over the head um, and a small electric stimulation will impact the brain and the depression circuitry and you know, repeated sessions can reduce depression again with without the invasive nature of ECT. Okay. And we have a neurologist in Spokane, David Greeley, who is administering that type of uh, transcranial magnetic sti stimulation or mm. TMS. And then uh, Helen Mayberg actually found that uh, in the brain of someone with Depression, Broadman's area 25 runs very hot. It's just overly stimulated. And she found that by putting, implanting a small electrode into Broadman's area 25 and turning on a small electric circuit, uh, for at least two-thirds of people who have been, again, unresponsive to other forms of depression therapy, they had a significant reduction uh, in depression. Wow. And now we're kind of on the horizon of what had been researched, you know, decades ago before the federal government shut it down. But uh, we're now seeing that in the realm of psychedelic treatment, uh, we're having some very impressive results with minimal adverse effects with a variety of psychedelic medications. And one that has recently been FDA approved is ketamine, you know, oh, which was yeah. used for uh, anesthesia and analgesia. Also We've, highly abused, heavily abused on the street, right? Yeah. To a degree. Yeah. Which doesn't lend itself to people being real accepting to the use of it. The, the, the rapidity of depression reduction is far uh, faster yeah. than the traditional uh, second generation antidepressants. And the effects tend to persist. Um, this is what some people in the community are now uh, trying. Uh, esketamine is one of the names of this, uh, Spravato. Some of it can be infused. Others uh, come in a nasal kind of spray. Some real success. Right. And if we look at what's called uh, effect size, the effect size of antidepressants, if they're mild to, to moderate, is really low. It reaches maybe 0.47 for severe depression, which what's, is what's 0 0.47. 0, 0. Mean? 0.47 is the effect size, and you have to 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 reach 0.47, you have to have severe depression, and you're you're getting treated, and it's oh, only okay. a moderate impact. Okay, but if you look at some of the uh, research on psychedelic uh, medications and ketamine, the effect size can go up from. 0.47 to 4. Oh, wow. That's huge. What's the scale? Um, you know, I'm not really zero sure. Zero to... Yeah, well, I, I don't know how high the effect size can be, uh -huh. but it's far greater 
then again, the traditional treatments for depression and very encouraging because the side effects and the adversity associated with this kind of treatment is relatively low. You know, not everyone uh, would be a candidate for this kind of treatment. Like if you have a history of schizophrenia, not a good idea. Psychosis, not a good idea. Sure. Um, but for most people, since, you know, schizophrenia runs at a base rate of 1% worldwide, that's a very small percentage of the population that, you know, would not necessarily want to approach that type of treatment. Would you consider it Western or Eastern medicine? Um, I just think it's something that has been involved in Western medicine back in the the 60s and and 70s before the federal government shut it down and labeled some of these drugs as Schedule 1, dangerous without any kind of medical benefit. But even back then when, uh, for example, MDMA was being researched and multiple psychiatrists said this can be a beneficial medication for a variety of different conditions, Back in the the Nixon administration and the Reagan administration, they just shut it all down. Uh, That's unfortunate. But research is coming back alive. Actually, in Oregon, they're introducing legislation, which may be passed in in 2020, to allow psilocybin to be um, a treatment protocol, Uh, MDMA as well. There's a group in Portland that is doing that kind of work. So I've always been impressed with Oregon. I lived there, did my fellowship, and they were always ahead of many locations in in the United States in terms of looking at what might be effective for people in a variety of different settings. And so it's not a surprise that the seminar that I went to, which was called Psychedelic Assisted Psychotherapy, was in Portland. And interestingly enough, I was one of the youngest people in the audience. So that suggested to me that these people in their 80s and maybe even in their 90s were using this type of treatment before the federal government shut it down. Wow. Heavily involved. And then seeing such exciting results because of, uh, I mean, I don't know if we want to get into the reason why they shut it down. That's a whole nother political conversation in terms of control. And, and I'm sure there's some conjecture there and opinions. But the fact of the matter is, is it became inaccessible for you to truly test and utilize it without a special license and probably going through a ton of red tape and bureaucracy so so you could administer it to patients that might benefit from it. Did it just become too difficult at that point to, they said, the heck with it, we'll have to look at other avenues? Well, in the world of cannabis, I think we can see that big pharma um, probably played a role in classifying uh, marijuana as a schedule one kind of drug when there was no evidence that it's dangerous. I mean, I think we have yet to discover anyone who has overdosed and died on cannabis. Wow. Not one. But you can certainly overdose and die on, obviously, opioids. We hear about that. And fentanyl. Fentanyl. And in fact, in uh, Arizona, when they were trying to get medical marijuana passed and uh, and the, the population voted on this, it was the fentanyl industry that put in the largest amount of money to counteract uh, the approval of the medical marijuana law in wow. Arizona, and it was defeated. Wow. 
So I think we've got some evidence that Big Pharma <laughs> is against some of these natural substances that have been around for a long time. I mean, we have an endocannabinoid system. Wow. We have evolved with plants, and, and we would not be responsive to marijuana unless we had an endocannabinoid system that, when we ingest this, has an impact on us in a variety of different ways. A very positive impact in a variety of ways. Yes. And it's been obviously demonized and then um, dramatized. You've got movies, and, and then you've got the stereotypical typical pothead and it doesn't look real sexy to those that might be of the conservative ilk. However, they have no problem being associated with big pharma and, and saying, well, the FDA approved this uh, 30% success rate or less if it's actually going to take hold and work for me. <laughs> Why not go with something tried and true or at least something that wouldn't kill you and you're, you're, you're able to have a longer, larger window of experimentation without the gnarly side effects. Right. Huh. That's, that's incredible. Okay. Yep. So now that things have kind of calmed down within the realm of people being so anti, and we're starting to accept the fact that there may be other remedies out there, particularly with the opioid epidemic and crisis overprescribed, overabused. Now that we are, uh, we're saying, okay, I give up. Well, let's try anything at this point. How did we get back to psychedelics, MDMA and ketamine of all things? Well, you know, a lot of medicines had impact that, that we never anticipated. Right. So ketamine was an analgesic. It was used in anesthesia. Yeah. But then we just by chance discovered that people who are depressed when they had ketamine were substantially less depressed and rapidly. <laughs> and and also they've done research on that. And uh, another thing that is a, you know, a major issue uh, for us is, is suicide. And yeah. uh, it reduced suicidal thinking and the risk of suicide as well. And again, the results tend to be persistent. And some people may need another, you know, they may need to use more ketamine, either an infusion or through, you know, a nasal spray or whatever. But what we see is that uh, there's, there's a substantial reduction in depressive symptoms, far more than placebo, for months um, on end. Wow. Uh, so it's, it's encouraging. And, and again, people who have been looking at the frustrating impact of, of the traditional approaches to treating depression are actually more enthusiastic and optimistic than I've seen in my entire career since these alternative strategies have started to surface. Wow. And be you know researched and you know a lot of this now you would you would sign up for a research protocol you know participate in the research protocol but as I said it it could be right around the corner that this type of treatment is actually um, approved in certain states and in certain cities wow. so people could you know travel down to say Portland and and have that kind of treatment with remarkable results. You're starting to see a little bit more of it. There, there's a book uh, that you and I both have read by uh, Michael Pollan, How to Change Your Mind. He does a great job about talking about history, of course, and then the demonization and, and then the complete eradication from, from all scientific study for, for years on end. Then all of a sudden, you see Anderson Cooper on 60 Minutes talking about it as if it's, well, this is a super viable option for us for people suffering from any number of issues. And he does a deep dive. Not a critical one, in a sense. He's just a simple discovery. And he's one of the he's one of the more reputable guys out there, as far as the news is concerned. What type of patients are you treating, or at least suggesting, or thinking that this might be a viable way to help them live happy lives? Well, if we think about entropy, 
there are certain conditions that have low entropy and high rigidity. Depression is one of those. Addictive disorders can also put a person in this kind of highly rigid state, PTSD, Uh and obsessive compulsive disorder. And then we kind of move from that to maybe a, a normal state of arousal and an optimal state of arousal. And what we notice about some of the psychedelics is it actually puts us into an optimal state of arousal and the what's called the default mode network, which is kind of all about survival. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it puts us in a state of we rapidly assess a situation, we make determinations whether or not they're rational, mm. but it's all about minimizing data input, making conclusions, and surviving. So if we have this rigid kind of form of uh, this default mode network in depression, OCD, and other conditions like that, it's very difficult to move outside of that Um, with medication, uh, with other traditional treatment approaches. But what we're finding is one of the remarkable uh, impacts of this kind of psychedelic therapy is that the network of communication in the brain moves over to more greater entropy where we think kids are. We Mm. think young kids don't have that kind of rigidity of thinking, you know, when they're young, and they can see and solve problems uh, more effectively, depending on what the problem is, than an adult can. And from that point of view, uh, and and from that state of mind, we can see things creatively. We can change our perception and even the story we have made about ourselves. And we tend to make stories about ourselves based on our life experiences. And again, it's all about survival. Survival. Bad things happen. We conclude things about out there, other people, ourselves, and we adapt. Right. And yet yeah. we tend to persist with that rigidly, which then eventually tends to really hold us back and interfere with what our capabilities are. So the psychedelics tend to connect parts of the brain that are not normally communicating with one another. Uh, it alters our sensory perception, and depending on you know the neurotransmitters that may be impacted, there can be a greater sense of peace and tranquility. Uh, there can be kind of a, a stimulation. There tends to be a reduction in depression and anxiety. For some people, that defense mode network is going to suppress you know, traumatic memories. And so when that system is relaxed, those traumatic memories can surface. But when you are in a therapeutic environment, you know, where you have, in, well, they're called sitters. Usually there's a male and a female that are accompanying the voyager on a psychedelic treatment protocol. They can address those things that they've been avoiding and wow. avoiding and trying to put into the closet for years, but have still had an impact on their relationships, their work, their lives, their health. And they can see it from a totally different perspective. And many people, they found this relationship between the greater your mystical experience on any of these drugs, the more likely your change in perception about your trauma and yourself will be persistently more helpful. It's like wow. you change your perspective forever and you walk away from PTSD and they had some remarkable studies at how you know the the, the PTSD rates just dropped uh, and persistently dropped for months if not years after that kind of intervention wow so it's very encouraging that it can 
permanently change the way you, you view yourself and your trauma and let it go. And, you know, when you're having a mystical experience, it's like things outside of yourself, you know, are, are much more important. And we, we go through this period of what's called ego dissolution, meaning that the ego that we hold on to and defend just kind of dissipates, disappears. And when that does, we're able to see things in ways we haven't seen before with remarkable insights that are persistent. And then the, the symptoms of PTSD are displaced because you're taking care of the problem, the symptoms being alcoholism, drug abuse, inability to maintain or hold a job, uh, suicide. So you're really uh, nipping the, the issue right in the bud by uh, focusing on that trauma so they can move on and then focus on more more positive aspects of their life. Yeah. So they've also wow. found in addition to reducing the symptoms of PTSD, the accompanying ways in which people try to survive with PTSD, like using nicotine, using alcohol, mm. using opiates, the use of those kinds of drugs also diminished. It's like, okay, when you change your view, change your environment, you, yeah. you may not need to alter the current view that is trauma in, induced, right? You know, sure, you, just, you know, sure. people just don't like that trauma induced view. And so they're going to drink too much or going to smoke too much or whatever. Yeah. And once you see it from a different point of view, the utilization of those drugs diminishes. There's a link with PTSD, uh, anxiety, increased cortisol release, right, and adrenaline, um, which can be problematic for, for your health long term, which brings us to the ACE study, Adverse Childhood Experiences. And I know you have extensive experiences as a neuropsychologist within this field. How is that PTSD linked to the ACEs and how these alternative treatments may be available to help those suffering from, from the ACEs that we'll get into? Um, well, again, we, we think that there's something called childhood amnesia, and that's, uh, we, we don't really remember stories that occur in our life until language develops, but yet we can be traumatized before we have language, and we still think that that's stored in the body, and it has an impact. And then once we're, for most of us, two years old and older, we start to develop language, and then we, we have recollection of events that might have been traumatizing to us. And in the ACE study, occurred down in uh, the San Diego area, um, they asked questions that actually were somewhat controversial. And uh, some of the people reviewing the study said, well, you can't ask that question. <laughs> and so I had to work through that. Um, and then eventually did a survey, uh, which, you know, they, they had uh, several phases of this that went up to 17,000 people. And they asked about these adversities that occur. And some of these examples would be early parental separation or divorce, witnessing domestic violence, particularly the mother being uh, uh, physically abused, a substance use problem, someone in the family incarcerated, uh, neglect, physical, emotional, sexual abuse, uh, things of that nature. They found out that, surprisingly, the rate of these adverse events in childhood were far greater than what people anticipated. Mm. For example, uh, they found that some of the most frequent uh, adverse events were physical abuse 
28% of the population that was surveyed. And this was this was a diverse population, but many people had some college and college degrees. Most were Caucasian, but it was Hispanic, I think about 11%, Asian and black. But it was a more highly educated population. And so to see that this mm. rate was that high in that population was really surprising. So 28% uh, for physical abuse, 28, 21% for sexual abuse, 27% were exposed to a substance use disorder, and 23% underwent parental separation and divorce. And just wow. going back to the substance use issue, I, you know, when, when there's alcoholism in the family, um, I think it creates insanity for everyone in the, in the household. I mean, um, could certainly attest to that. Yeah. Everyone's yeah. trying to survive that. Right. And they, they respond in different ways. You know, that, all by itself has tremendous impact, you know, being uh, being physically abused, emotionally abused, sexually abused. I mean, they found in this study that I believe over 54% of those who were obese were sexually abused. Wow. And again, if you think about how you're going to defend yourself, sure. you're going to make yourself unattractive. And how sure. do you do that? Well, I'm going to put on a lot of pounds. Sure. You know, again, I don't think that's conscious, sure. but I think that's one of the consequences of this. And they found that there was a dose-response relationship. You know, the more uh, of these adverse events occurred, the higher the risk for a variety of negative behavioral, emotional, and physical consequences. And that a lot of people would engage in negative behaviors to try to manage those adversities. You know, right. drinking, smoking, you know, abuse themselves, etc. Essentially, what this did was decrease longevity and lifespan. And initially, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, that's the study was done because they were finding that people were dying early from cardiac events, and they wanted to figure out exactly what what was happening here. And they stumbled across these adverse childhood experiences and they're called experiences because trauma almost is a too hard, harsh of a word. And you ask anybody, Joe Schmo on the street, have you been traumatized as a child? And they go, Oh no, I had a pretty normal childhood. But then you start really diving deep into the questions that they ask. And if you really think about it, uh, be honest with yourself, the experience of just having one of these, is, it could be very common. Alcohol and, and drug abuse is, is very common in all types of cultures, whether you're low SES, you're a minority, or you're rich and white, <laughs> you know, or poor and white, or whatever. And so understanding that, that it really can happen to you, uh, it would be the first step in, in helping them get treatment and then stopping it at the source so they don't perpetuate this behavior with their children, which is so very common. I see that in my behavior. Um, I'm a recovering alcoholic, as we know, and many of my, my listeners know. I find that I, I've just cyclically repeated the stuff that my father had had done. That's what I knew as a kid. That's how I grew up. And some of it just wasn't healthy. And, and he, he understands that. And gosh, my dad and I couldn't be closer now, but we've had open conversations about upbringing, how I am with my sons and how he was with me. Um, you know, I look at the, the ACE study and I see that I have got two. Initially when I read it, I didn't think I had any. And then I read it again, all 10 questions. And I thought, 
oh, maybe I have four. (laughs) And then I started to say, okay, I need to really evaluate exactly what's happening here. And I believe, realistically, I have two. Here I am, white, blue-eyed, grew up in Connecticut, pretty homogeneous area, middle to upper class. And I still had to deal with these issues that perpetuated themselves in me drinking, using nicotine, (laughs) right? Erratic behavior that almost destroyed me before I got sober. And then after the fact, having still repercussions from that when I quit drinking, right? Uh, Alcohol is but a symptom of of our sickness. And um, until I really took a deep dive into why I went to these behaviors, wasn't until I could get better. But again, I had the resources to do it. I had the time and the support. Um, not only that, but, but the benefit to do it, the privilege in paying for it and having access to this type of care. The percent of the population that has four may be as high as 12%. Uh, you know, of course, higher as we go lower with the number. Right. And again, the, the, the increase of risk is directly related to the number of these ACEs that show up. And so just to clarify for everybody, there's 10 questions on this test. And each question and an answer equates to one ACE. So, right. uh, and, and the graphs that I've read and the, stuff, the, the, the studies that were done that said, you know, one to two ACEs is fairly common. Yeah. But also, it's fairly manageable. And depending on your resources, again, um, this, this shouldn't be such a derailment for you. Then you said as the, as the exposure rate goes up, the, the more ACEs you have, the more issues you're going to find yourself in. And, and then drug abuse, inability to maintain employment. And then, you know, you're at a four or more ACEs. Are you totally fucked at that point? And, and here's where my thinking goes, is that if you are within that four plus range, you've had a pretty damn traumatic childhood. Not only have you experienced this, but you don't have the wherewithal, the resources, or the understanding that there's help out there. And there's ways to mitigate the impact this is having on your life as you move forward. Then you start having children, and then it, the, the process repeats itself the way that you act towards your children and um, exposing them to these risks and these ACEs w- without breaking that cycle. So, you know, when kids are growing up, they're, they're going to go in one of two ways. You know, they're going to they're gonna have a look at uh, what is there, and they're going to mimic it. You know, they're going to reproduce it. Sure. But some are going to say, I'm never going to be that way. You know, so, for example, when I was a kid and I was out on Orcas Island, we were... I remember it was wintertime. It was the old kind of car with little triangular windows. Both of my parents were smoking, and I could barely breathe. <laughs> and I think I was 11. And I said, I will never smoke cigarettes, you know. Yeah. And yet many who have parents who smoke will smoke cigarettes. Sure. But for me, it was, I'm not going to go that way, you know. So I also, you know, had a mom who eventually said, yeah, maybe I've got an alcohol problem. And she checked herself into an inpatient unit. And, uh, and fortunately... My body, when I drink too much alcohol, communicates with nausea, and nausea is not a reinforcer for me. So, you know, I, it, it, it also was very, very positive for me to get sick. And that kind of said, okay, I'm limiting my exposure to alcohol, you know, and when I was in uh, the Air Force at Scott Air Force Base, one of our alcohol counselors 
had a very different point of view with alcohol. She would get, she would drink so much, she would get sick, and she would celebrate because once she purged herself, she could drink more. I've been so there. it was a very <laughs> different kind of point of view. 100%. For me, sickness avoid. For her, sickness get rid of it and keep drinking. Uh, what's the old movie quote? Um, I don't throw up when I drink. I throw up when I don't. <laughs> But so your your point is is you 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 didn't repeat that process. I think you were a lucky one in that sense that a you're not a smoker. I know you're not, and you're not a heavy drinker. No, yeah. actually, uh, I've been focused more on nutritional science in the last couple of years and reading a variety of sources of of remedies for various problems that can be addressed naturally as opposed through, you know, taking a drug with side effects. Mm. And uh what are you talking about? Are you talking about physical problems like uh, uh ailment physical ailments? And and emotional, and emotional issues. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we know that, you know, our fuel makes a difference. And uh, oh, wow. um, one of the books that I re- read was called The Prime by an integrative neurologist. Her name is uh Colreet Chaudhry, born and raised in India. Uh, she got educated uh, there and also in North America. And so her book is about um, how do we discover natural ways to maintain our well-being? Mm-hmm. And it's basically nutritional strategies, um, a phased approach, depending on what kind of physical issues you've got. And when I started to ad- adapt some of her uh, points of view and integrate it into my lifestyle, very subtle changes showed up. One was when I drink this tea in the morning, which is a recipe she provided, my hunger is totally suppressed. And so now I'm in the world of having a mini fast. And they've done some research mm-hmm. on mini fasting and sure. have found that that might be, you know, uh, healthy for people. My interest in food and drink subtly changed as I've been doing this on a regular basis. The interest in alcohol is plummeted to about <laughs> zero. You know, and it's not like I have to work on this in my head. It's just no longer something that is attracting me. My uh-huh. interest in sugar has plummeted. And we know that sugar has some real downsides. Oh, God. I'm an addict. I went from alcohol (laughs) to sugar, and I obsess, and I must have it. And I'm uh, clenching my teeth as I finish my dinner, just waiting for to see what that sweet treat will be. Even though I'm stuffed and gorged, I don't care. There's always room for sugar for me because, God, what a great dopamine release I receive when I have something ultra-ly sweet. And I understand in that moment, I have a problem, and, and this is not healthy. <laughs> yeah. So so it's these are ways in which we're trying to influence our brain chemistry, sure. and some things are going to have less of an impact in a negative way than others. Mm-hmm. So right now, you know, the impact of this, you know, some taking some uh, supplements based on her recommendation and brewing this tea on a regular basis is, you know, essentially minimal. I've lost weight without really trying to lose weight just wow. because my appetite is suppressed by drinking the tea. I have no appetite. Would you be willing to share that with our listeners? I can post it. Sure. Because I certainly would like to try it. I'm open yeah. to it. Yeah. Okay, great. So, you know, and there are seminars now for um, nutritional strategies for managing uh, mental and emotional disorders. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, the, the, uh, some of the, the science is pointing to, you know, how we fuel ourselves does make a difference, and there can be some nutritional strategies that might help with, with very various conditions. How, how are we just figuring this out now? You know, I think traditionally people have just gone to the uh, Western Medicine Doc and have just said, okay, wh- how can you treat my problem is usually a medication. That's, that's very defensive. Th- that's the training they get. They don't have 
uh, nutritional medicine training. You know, it's it's just it has been very much ignored. Yeah. And so I think people are beginning to recognize that we have different points of view for how to optimize health. And that's offensive. You know, uh, yeah. And can you make can you make as much money being offensive than you, you can defensive? No, because, you know, <laughs> pre- prevention research usually doesn't yield a big, you know, financial benefit. It's it's a little bit more difficult to Monetize determine the effect. That. Of, yeah, right. Of prevention versus let's do a double blind study on Prozac and see how it does with, you know, reducing depression versus a placebo. You know, Eric Erickson was great, and he wrote a book called Identity, Youth, and Crisis. And instead of saying that all of human development is done uh, in childhood, he said it extends throughout our lifespan. You know, when you're in your 20s, you have different issues you're dealing with than if you're two or if you're, you know, uh, you know, uh, a kid who's an adolescent or someone who's in their 60s and looking back to see, did I live my life with integrity or do I have a lot of gr- regret, you know? So, so that really extended our kind of view of what kinds of crises we, we uh, face as human beings. And in his point of view, the first is, and again, this goes back to the ACE study, do I trust those around me? You know, are they going to be there for me when I need them to be there for me? And if you, if you, if the answer is no, then it's mistrust, and that can begin very, very early in life. And and I certainly have seen lots of people who have had to go into foster care because their parents were drug addicted or had some other kind of mental disorder that just prevented them from being present and loving for those kids, leading them. Uh, to conclude, I can't, I can't trust the world I'm in. And if, if that's the way you are, that's going to have real consequences, you know, in terms of social avoidance. And that's one of the consequences of PTSD. One of the most common among combat veterans I've seen is they just don't want to be in the world of socially interacting. And I've seen several who have literally moved out of a town like Spokane and into very remote places of Montana or north of Spokane sure. just because they get triggered, you know, when they're around other human beings. And uh, again, that's the brain's survival network that becomes very rigid, that uh, default mode network, very rigid. So I saw a guy who was buried by rock when he was doing construction. And so when he's driving through a construction area, he's re-triggered. You know, his whole... High alert, high high alert. alert, Right, right, right. Noises trigger him. Mm. Um, and, And that's the way the brain is operating for us to be in the survival mode. But unless we work at pursuing resilience, again, the consequences of that, and studied by Hans Selye, is called the general adaptation syndrome. Exhaustion is going to be the outcome of this. Right. And, it, you know, things happen, you know, when you're continually releasing uh, uh, adrenaline and cortisol, mm. when we're really not in a survival state. It's great when we really need mm. to respond immediately, but we as human beings are getting stressed out about things that have really little, if anything, to do uh, with survival. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Very little will kill us in this world, and I've talked about that on a prior podcast. We're living in the safest time in all of humankind and, and history even though it seems dire and every every action has a reaction and people think that reaction is going to be cataclysmic and it's going to kill us all. 
obviously we're, uh, I try not to date these podcasts, but we're in a very strange time right now. And, and there's either a, a heightened sense of awareness that this could be the end or we need to do all we can to save us. And there's others that say, well, this, this, this too will pass and let's get on with our lives. So I've got bigger fish to fry. If we're always triggered and, oh my gosh, I've got a huge speaking engagement. There's a thousand people there. All of a sudden my fight or flight is kicked in because I have some unresolved issues in the past that create this intense, increased anxiety. All of a sudden I might feel like I'm going to die, Yeah, <laughs> but I'm not and I won't and <laughs> I get through it and it's great, but I didn't need that. And the freaking recovery after something of an event like that, I don't think people give enough credit to what that type of adrenaline cortisol does to a body and how long it takes to recover from something of that nature. Generally, there's two responses to the to stress. One is going to be the endocrine system, and one is going to be the sympathetic nervous system. It's much. It takes much longer to recover from hormone release in the endocrine system than the sympathetic nervous system arousal. So it's going to be it's going to be hard to get back to baseline oh. unless you unless you catch the the triggering response right away. And that means you got to be mindful. <laughs> you know, you got to be aware that your brain is all about survival, but you don't necessarily have to be your brain. I mean, you you can monitor your brain, which is part of the foundation of cognitive behavioral therapy inspired sure. by William Shakespeare in the 1500s who said, there's nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. So part of this is being aware <laughs> that the thought process is not necessarily rational. We're not programmed rationally, no, you know, we're not. not. And so when something happens and we're triggered, we've got to kind of monitor, at least in part, what are our thoughts about the circumstances, because not everything we're thinking about is going to be rational. Yeah. Uh, and that's particularly true in the world of obsessive compulsive disorder, where a person generates all kinds of rules about the way things must be and how they must be controlled. This is that rigidity I was talking about before, and it's very difficult to live with someone with OCD because there's constant rule violations oh, yeah. <laughs> <I hear laughs> and you. difficulty associated with that. So <laughs> it, it, it's... Uh, and and again, trying to break through that um, with without doing something remarkably different, like uh, perhaps the psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, sure, sure. is very challenging because these people are surviving the world of high anxiety be tr by trying to control everything. To include how many times do I need to check that the door's locked oh. before I can leave the house? Right. Those kinds of things. I think a lot of people are more guilty of that than they think. And I don't mean guilty, but suffer from some form of, of OCD. And, and it's probably on somewhat of a scale. Yeah. You know, maybe you're mildly affected by it and, and you have repetitive thoughts. Or yes, it's you have to walk through a door five times before you can pass through the threshold or else someone's going to die. Right? <laughs> there's some extreme cases and then there's some, some mild ones. That might not necessarily affect your lifestyle to, to a high degree, but still it's there and filling up some valuable brain space for you. I, interestingly enough, just recently, um, a person was scheduled for an appointment with me. Husband calls back and says, oh, we've got to cancel that appointment. It's on an odd day of the month and she can only have appointments on 
even days of the month, oh. suggesting how her mind is operating. Immediately knew you knew what you were getting into. <laughs> well, I have a hypothesis. Of course. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. And let's put it in perspective because you know this more more so than many others. Is It's not a great way to live. And, and I think people are very aware of their OCD and their disorders, but they just can't get past that loop. It's depressing and it's fear-inducing. It's embarrassing. Am I wrong here? Are they going through life completely oblivious that this is happening, that they're passing a threshold five times before they go through? Oh, I think most of the time they're aware of it. They just don't feel like they're empowered to make a change. Oh. Yeah. They just don't you just don't see how they can make a change because they think, you know, they catastrophize about the possibility oh, yeah. of if you don't do this then something horrible is going to happen, right. you know? And, and as you said, I think it's a continuum, you know? Uh, we, some of us probably have that, that tendency, but not to the point where it's really creating misery. So for a mental disorder, it's got to create misery, or it's got to significantly interfere with your ability to socialize, your work, your academic life, wow. you know, in order for it to qualify as a disorder. So, you know, some of us probably have that kind of orientation, um, but it's not really interfering in our life the way it is for someone with the diagnosis of OCD. Right. And how much, how much of the OCD are you seeing that you think is closely related to ACE? Um, I think that that's kind of a survival mechanism for some people. Sure. Yeah. This is the way, um, because I didn't have control over these events when I was a kid. Boy, I'm going to grab the world of control in every way I can now. Mm. And, and that's one way that, that people have, you know, shifted uh, to survive in the world and uh, not necessarily in a healthy way, yeah. you know. Just as you did, you said, I'm going to take control of this. I'm not going to smoke. And you didn't. They did the same thing. It just happened to be negatively impacting their life in 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 other ways yeah well then some <laughs> people will be adapted to the stress they experience in childhood by being you know we, we call it the the fight flight response or being frozen now some people are going to be highly anxious you know they're just you know they're going to be triggered into the world of anxiety and anxiety can be in a variety of forms it can be social anxiety it can be generalized anxiety and we used to call it hypochondriasis, but we call it illness anxiety now, where people, and I imagine a lot of people with COVID-19 going around right now are having a boatload of illness anxiety. <laughs> right. You know, they're right. just really freaking out about that. And on the other end of that spectrum are people who are using the most common human defense mechanism of denial. Uh, oh, no, it's not going to impact me. No way. Never. And, you know, when denial is really working, you're not even really aware that you're in a state of denial. But I see it all over uh, this town. I see it on TV where people are acting as if this will have no impact, although it's had a big impact on the world population. And as far as we know, we'll continue to have that kind of impact until we get something that's going to really be successful in preventing it Mm. or treating it. So that's kind of the two ends of the spectrum, you know, is, gee, I'm going to freak out about this because, you know, I've been programmed through survival to be anxious or I'm going to deny it. And then the other way that people can be in a stressful situation is they're going to externalize that stress onto others. They're going to be pissed off. They're going to be angry. They're going to attack. You know, that's the way they are in that kind of situation. To overcome the effects that we now know that are very powerful uh, in influencing adult health is we have to fight back with building resilience. Mm. And that was part of 
after Nadine Burke Harris, a pediatrician, learned about the ACE study, and uh, she was on Surgeon a, General of California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's phenomenal. She was uh, shocked by the results, and then she decided that she was going to alter her practice for people that she was serving in San Francisco by, you know, helping the kids, helping the families, having a multidisciplinary approach to this, using that ACE questionnaire for everyone who came through the door. That's how she adapted her medical practice. And she won a humanitarian award in medicine for the ways in which she altered her practice to serve people. 100% buy-in there. Yeah, she's she's been a, a great uh, champion for for this and then yep. wanting all physicians and family doctors general practitioners to utilize these questionnaires as they bring in new patients does yep. she not we, yeah. yeah which we do in our practice now good good you know we're, we're looking at and, and even when i see someone in their 70s you know and and i'm looking at their compromised health which could be you know many people will come in to see me with a memory issue and they're worried about dementia you know mm. Um, but they've, they've got other concerns as well. And if we look back to what happened in childhood, we can see perhaps the link between what happened in childhood and, and what's now showing up uh, uh, in, in terms of multiple physical, mental, and emotional compromises. Yeah. There was an interesting study out of the University of Virginia called uh, The Body Remembers, and John Allen was the, uh, the, the primary investigator. And what he did, it was a longitudinal study looking at people from 13 to 28. And they presented conflict scenarios. Uh, to the 13-year-olds, it was, you're in a basketball game and you're being treated meanly by the other team. How would you respond? And they kind of graded, you know, from, oh, I'm going to punch him in the face. Uh, not a very good outcome. To saying something that would essentially stop, you know, the conflict um, and just, allow you to move on. And then they looked at, again, they're following these these kids from 13 to 28. They're looking at how uh, people are in their rom- romantic relationships, how they're dealing with conflict resolution as they're young adults. And then they look at their blood level at age 28. Hmm. And what they found was there was a difference between people who learned how to manage conflict effectively and those who did not. Those who did not had more interleukin-6 in their bloodstream. And with that in your bloodstream, it increases your risk of cancer of Mm. all different types, arthritis, and osteoporosis. So what happens in childhood makes a difference on our adult health. Very clear and convincing evidence from the ACE study and from this study as well. When I was at a very interesting conference called the U.S. Psychiatry and Mental Health Congress, which is an annual meeting that goes all over the country, they did a a study on resilience and what were some of the key factors of, say, overcoming some of this this stuff that happens to us as kids. And, you know, some very basic, you know, foundations. We need to honor sleep, and we don't do a very good job of honoring sleep in the United States. No way. Most of us are sleep-deprived. Most of us are going to bed at various hours of the day, getting up at, at other hours. We're violating <laughs> the circadian rhythm. We're violating what we know makes a difference in terms of our overall well-being, getting enough sleep and getting quality sleep. And so that was one of the foundations. Regular aerobic exercise. Well, we're not doing such a good job there either. You know, now we consider sitting as the new smoking. You know, we're way too sedentary. And, you know, in the world of video gaming, 
we're sitting on our ass way too long. And we now know because people are starting to study the impact of being on these devices, how negative that can be for your emotional well-being, your social well-being, and also cognition. We actually think we're kind of stupefying ourselves by being on these devices for too long. Mm. And of course, the creators know that uh, we're going to pay attention to what are called supranormal stimuli. And anything that is, you know, exciting and changes and changes and changes, oh, we pay attention to that. In the meantime, yes, we're hooked. And that is having big time problems for us. The other thing is mindfulness, which is, you know, being in the present and just being aware of what is there without judgment, because it's hard for us to let go. Again, that default mode network, judge, 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 good, bad, avoid, attack, whatever, is kind of our automatic response. Stay alive, stay alive. Stay alive. It's all about stay alive. And so mindfulness is just being present And just being there and maybe even appreciating what you see, because we have done research on gratitude and appreciation, and that makes a positive difference for people's health. So mindfulness is an important part of this kind of network. Social connection is a very important part in this research study. Every day you're going to connect in some way, email, text message, you know, face-to-face conversation. Um, and then they, they said the Mediterranean diet. And interestingly enough, after that study was published, um, a meta-analytics study came out of London last fall in which um, those who carefully aligned with the Mediterranean diet were significantly less likely to become depressed. 30% reduction, 30% reduction in Alzheimer's disease. I have never seen a more encouraging study in my entire career on prevention. Depression, the number, the number one leading cause of worldwide disability. Alzheimer's disease, the, the leading cause of dementia. And if you can change your nutritional approach and prevent both, why not? As opposed to, you know, we think the changes in the brain for dementia occur 10 years before the symptoms show up. By then, it is too late. Sure. You know, you can throw Aricept or Namenda at someone. I've never seen anyone remarkably improve as a result of that. Or and, survive it or, to a long degree and be able to live a, a normal life. They yeah. can't. No. Oh, gosh. They can't. So, so... That approach to nutrition, and there's out, you know, outshoots of that are the DASH diet and, and the MIND diet, but those approaches now have got, you know, scientifically validational research that says, you know, we should probably at least look into what is the Mediterranean diet <laughs> and, and move in that direction. And the other thing that I recently looked at was what are inflammatory food groups oh, I versus that one. what are <laughs> anti-inflammatory God. food groups? And, and by the way, Evan, your sugar yeah, is in that inflammatory um, kind of domain. <laughs> Perfect example, because I know that. I know that, and I don't care because it makes me feel so damn good in the moment, but I know, gosh darn, I'm going to pay for it. And, and, and that leads me to my next question is, we have this information, we have this amazing data, why the hell... Are we so freaking resistant to it? Because <laughs> we have a hedonistic brain. Yeah. Oh, it feels good. <laughs> and anything that feels good immediately, and you kind of describe like, oh, there's almost an immediate feel good with, you know, with the sugar, right? Yeah. And so, so that's kind of what we learn about people. We got two different types. Those that want to grab the low-hanging fruit, the immediate reward, 
versus those that say, oh, I need to climb that tree to get that beautiful apple about 15 feet above the ground. And we find that those who can delay gratification usually have better outcomes in the long run or those who are just continually fueling the hedonistic brain. You know, feel good, feel good, feel good. And and that's kind of my family. They want to feel good. <laughs> and, I, and, and when you know, I, I mean, this doesn't always influence behavior, but when you know you know, the risks of, say, antidepressant medication, when you know the risks of inflammatory food groups. And, you know, we think that inflammation is linked to depression. We think it's linked to pain, physical pain. Oh, 100%. And Alzheimer's disease. Oh, good to know. It's the enemy. We need to avoid things that cause inflammation. Now, if you knew that, would that start you to shift into the anti-inflammatory world? Well, it's kind of movement, you know. We're not going to do that immediately. But in the last three weeks, I have researched inflammatory versus anti-inflammatory food groups, and I'm starting to avoid the things that are inflammatory and moving the direction of health. And again, uh, better. Is it resolving all problems? No, but I'm also going to go to a functional medicine doctor. There's only one in Spokane, wow. and she, instead of doing the defensive approach that you were describing, oh, let's throw a medication at this, and you said cure. Oftentimes, it's not cure. No. It's just treat the surface. We're going to just treat the symptom. Functional medicine is about let's get to the root cause of what's creating the problem and can we address and resolve the root cause so we're just not treating the symptoms we're resolving the cause of the problem so i'm going to go to uh this one physician monica german and just get a different point of view you know because i don't think that western medicine has all the points of view that are wise about what's going to make us healthy we can organize our life and structure our life to be a lot healthier than we are, 100%. despite what happened to us when we were a kid or, right. you know, even what's going on right now. Uh, but it's a commitment. It's a structure. So regardless of the information I have and I know that staying away from sugar is going to uh, is going to help my neck and my shoulders, I need to drink that tea. I need to eat less sugar, if at all, um, because this pain in my neck does change my life. It changes my reaction to my children. When it's at a high level and a high rate of pain, I am not a nice guy. Yeah. And and you use the word, I need. So I always kind of listen carefully to the language of people when they're communicating. Now, when someone says need, must, should, have to, what I normally notice is that there's going to be a little voice in the head that says, oh, no, you don't. Uh-uh, not going to do it. <laughs> You're going to resist you it. you know this voice in my head? Oh, it's, well, it's, I've heard, it's not the first time I've heard that from a human being, including <laughs> myself. So um, <laughs> the, the word I would, I would encourage us to think about is I prefer, I want, I desire. There's usually less resistance to what you want than what you think you have to do or sure. what you need to do. I love Very it. subtle, but that's part of cognitive behavioral therapy is to really become mindful of what kind of conversation are you having with yourself because it does make a difference. Mm. And in general, you want to challenge those things that are irre- you know unreasonable and irrational because generally things are going to work out better 
when we stay in a rational state of mind, you know, and when, when we're reacting and you talked about reacting and that is the way we're hardwired, you know, we react, that's that default mode network, immediate reaction. But the cognitive behavioral approach is also a mindfulness approach to say, oh, this is, I'm, I'm pissed, I'm angry. What just happened? What is the activating event? What do I think about it? And then you start to monitor your thoughts about how, what is supporting your anger and just ask yourself, is this a reasonable thought? Is this an unreasonable thought? And if it's unreasonable, you debate it. You, mm, yeah, <laughs> you want to, you want to substitute that because again, as Shakespeare said, there's nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Yeah. And, you know, there's nothing necessarily meaningful out there. We generate the meaning. So if you recognize that you are the author of the meaning you're creating, you are also the author of changing it, but you got to be aware of it. And a lot of us are just in the world of reaction. We're not even aware that we're doing this to ourselves and to others. You know, we're, we're, we're in pain. So we're going to be externalizing that onto our family and our friends. And we're just not aware (laughs) of how we're creating this. And awareness doesn't mean you're not going to do it. Awareness no, just means you're able to to reflect, uh, hopefully quickly after you have an incident or an occurrence of, of something that's adverse with a family member. And, and, and I have to remember and be kind to myself because I'm certainly not perfect and I'm not always going to do it right. And there'll be times where I'm triggered and I'm, I get angry when I didn't need to get angry. And then I say things that I didn't need to say. It wasn't necessary and it could have been resolved. My 12 year old's fantastic about pointing out how I should communicate to him and how much more effective I could be if I wasn't uh, fueled by rage. <laughs> that default mode network is not as well developed in your, your child as it is in you. <laughs> no, right. Right. And so, and I think immediately, oh, damn it, he's right. I need to kind of, uh, let, let's take a step back. How could I have brought the situation to light without having such conflict and uh, having to rework all of this in my head so I can um, come back and actually learn from it. And I think that's important is that we, we, we learn from these situations and then little by little uh, negate the need to use such reactions. And, and then it just becomes second nature that we communicate in a way that's effective for everybody to understand. That gets at the very important facet of leading a values-driven, meaningful life. Yeah. If you're clear about what matters most, like Ben Franklin developed when he was depressed in his 20s, and he finally said, I'm going to write down my virtues. What is really going to make a difference in my life? And once he clarified that, he lived his life in alignment with what matters most. And that's when his life really took off. His life inspired Stephen Covey, Hiram Smith. Uh, I'm not sure if it inspired um, David Taubin, but he is the the clinic pain director director for the University of Washington. Mm. And as part of managing pain, David Taubin said, lead a meaningful life. As far as dealing with depression, Lewinson said, lead a meaningful life. Plan things that are pleasurable, meaningful in your life. These are antidepressant behaviors that have no side effects. So I would say that for everyone, no one can take away your values. They can take away your car, your house, you know, things that are 
uh, that you own, but your values cannot be taken away. And Viktor Frankl discovered that when he was in a Nazi concentration camp. And he said, well, everything could be taken away except our attitude. And I can have the attitude that I want no matter what. And boy, that was inspiring to oh, Covey. Absolutely. Yeah, because he, he saw that people who did not have a sense of purpose, who did not have a sense of meaning, were more likely to die in the concentration camp than those who really had a clear sense of what mattered most. And he was one of them who survived and actually became a therapist writing a book on what's called logotherapy. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. So attitude makes a huge difference, you know, and again, we know that, you know, optimism and pessimism, you know, so some of us, because of our Mm -hmm. aces, may come up with a skeptical, pessimistic attitude, you know, and that's the view that they approach. But if we look at longevity... And, you know, uh, Martin Seligman started to study positive psychology and attitude matters, you know. So if you have a hopeful, optimistic point of view, you're more likely to live longer than if you're a skeptic and a pessimist. So it really does make a difference. Uh, I was discovered by Norman Cousin when he was sick and he was an author and he said, I wonder if my bad attitude is creating my disease or supporting it. And so he decided, okay, I'm going to change my attitude. I'm going to start to be playful, humorous. I'm going to watch the Three Stooges. I'm going to play with the nurses. And he got better, wow. and he recovered. And then he said, does this only matter for me, or could there be some universal wisdom here in attitude? And so he had a two-year fellowship at UCLA, and he discovered worldwide literature that said attitude, playfulness, and laughter really makes a difference for your immune system. So if you want to build your immunity to invaders, bacteria, viruses, etc., attitude makes a big difference. Sure. Laughter makes a big difference because sure. some would say laughter is internal jogging. So you're really treating yourself well. You can't be angry when you're laughing. You can't be <laughs> depressed when you're laughing. You can't be uh, any of these negative kind of emotional and, states. And vice you, versa. You can't laugh when you're depressed yeah. and when you're angry. No. And which is uh, obviously adverse for your health. Yeah. Yeah. Studied by Robert Sapolsky from Stanford, who wrote a book called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And he just he just learned that, you know, mammals, they'll go through a stress state. The tiger is running after them. They either escape or don't. And once they escape, they go back to baseline quickly. Very fast. They go back to eating. Yeah. And wagging their tails and getting flies off of them. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. Well, as humans, we internalize. I think we just pounding away at that experience over and over and over again until it beats ourselves into the ground. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Marshall yeah. Lynch on the two-yard line against uh, oh, the yes. Patriots. Patriots. And, Super Bowl, uh, yeah. you know, Carol decides, let's throw a pass instead of giving it to the beast. And uh, it's intercepted. They I lose the Super Bowl? You. Yeah, it was the Super Bowl. And, and they I can't lose tell it. you how many people just went over that again. And again, yeah. it was in the paper forever. It's like recreating yeah. the stress. It's like perseveration. Yeah. And that's what we can do when we're traumatized. And yeah. again, that didn't kill anyone's life. No. But we act as if it did. Do you know what Pete did shortly after that? At the press conference, he let it go and he moved on. Great interview with, with Pete Carroll. And, uh, and he said, yes, I just had to, like, well, I have a choice here. We can either uh, drown in tears in our sorrow or I can be somewhat of a role model and, and 
practice what I preach in that it happened. We understand why it happened. Now we need to move on. And as soon as he sat down at the press conference, he's like, yep, it happened. We made a decision. It was the wrong one. And we're going to look forward to the draft. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Incredible. Yep. Yeah, and, and, and again, because some people could be ruined by that, yeah. you know, as an extreme, it's ruinous. And, and a lot of us can't extract ourselves from that kind of what we would call perseveration. It's like a, an old uh, LP that is stuck in a groove and it's repeating again and again and again and again. Yeah. You, know, certain, you know, certain mental disorders like OCD has a lot of perseveration associated with traumatic brain injury can create perseveration uh, studied by A.R. Luria when people were injured in the frontal cortex and he asked them to draw a circle or a circle and a cross. Once they started drawing, they couldn't stop. And this can occur, you know, in a, in a mental way for someone with OCD, they go over the rules again and again and again, and they just can't break free of that, you know, and the traditional medicines don't help them break free. That's why the psychedelics have been shown to really allow them to go into a totally different world and break free of that, which has kept them stuck for decades. Wow. Wow. Which is encouraging. Very encouraging. And there's so much more. It's been around for so long, but there, there's a long way to go, I think, by way of studies. And, and of course, they want to get it right. Um, but more and more examples are showing themselves that this is a very effective. And uh, it's, <laughs> it's non-lethal. I don't know. If you, if you knew that Bill Wilson, one of the co-founders of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, yeah. took Belladonna. Is that right? Uh, psychedelic. And he actually believed that people who are alcoholic should take psychedelics to overcome. And this was back in the 30s that he had that insight. It's been around for a long time. The research has been, you know, plentiful, cut off. Now we're back into researching it again. And I think there's a lot of room for for being very optimistic that we can really change our, our perspective in very healthy ways. I mean, it's been shown to help couples uh, to connect, you know, those who are struggling to connect. It's helped people with PTSD reduce, if not totally walk away from them, their symptoms. It's eliminated depression, anxiety symptoms, uh, smoking cessation. It's been helpful for reducing depression and anxiety with cancer and end-of-life issues. In so many different ways, it has been helpful for people far more powerfully than our traditional approaches. Wow, man. And the last thing that you mentioned a while back, I'll just say something about that, is focus. So, you can have issues with focus if you're traumatized. 100%. And you can have issues with focus if you inherit the genetics of attention deficit disorder. And that is a condition that has been well studied by the experts. And we really see that the brain is operating in a very different way when someone has this condition. And they've done functional brain imagery studies in which a problem is presented to those without and those with ADHD. And they look at what's, what parts of the brain are activated. And in this one study, both the right and the left brain were activated in the ADHD sample, but not in the non-ADHD sample. And which could mean that you have a creative way of looking at a problem and resolving it, or you're barking up the wrong tree. (laughs) 
making the wrong decision. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And uh, well, if you were to look at PET scans with the untreated ADD brain, you're going to actually see the PET scan to be a very different color than someone without the condition, particularly in the frontal cortex. And the frontal cortex is so very important for focus, focus. attention, yeah. right. perseverance, problem solving, yeah. emotional control. It's often called the executive part of the brain, and it's the most likely to be impacted by ADHD. And we believe that there's neurotransmitter deficiencies that are also influencing the behavior, which is why sugar may show mm. up for people, because it's dopamine and norepinephrine that tend to be on the low side. Yeah. And those are important neurotransmitters for emotional well-being. Absolutely. So I'll see someone who's coming into my office, and they're on like maybe two antidepressants, and I'm measuring their depression, and it's severe. And I just do a broad biopsychosocial interview, and I listen to them talk about school, and I listen to them talk about relationships and maybe work. And I'm looking for patterns because I've studied that. And when someone has severe depression and they're being treated with antidepressants, we're barking up the wrong tree. As I said earlier, it's serotonin we're assuming that they need, but not with ADHD. So oftentimes what is missing is the roots and the foundation of why someone might be depressed, why someone might be anxious, why someone might be angry, is that they're lacking other neurotransmitters that are very important in behavioral, cognitive, and emotional well-being. And the nice thing, and actually the great thing, about the uh, cognitive enhancers or stimulants is that they improve dopamine and norepinephrine safely and effectively. Mm. They also improve glutamate, which is like gasoline in your car. So it, it, it stimulates activity. So a lot of people with ADHD procrastinate. Oh, no, I'm not going to do this. Anything that's not hedonistic and fun, right. I'm not going to do. I'm with you. And also... It, 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 it stimulates GABA, which is like brake fluid in the car. So some young people, once they're on a video game, never get off. So you have trouble starting things and you have trouble stopping things. And with one medication, you can influence four neurotransmitters. And it's almost miraculous when we get the right drug at the right dose. What people will tell me about how their brain is now fully engaged. They feel better. Mm. You know, a lot of times people say, oh, I've got anxiety. If I take this stimulant medication, and I've even seen physicians kind of have this naive view that if someone's got anxiety, giving them a stimulant is going to make them worse. 99% of the time, it calms them. Wow. It's the opposite. And yeah. they'll say, I was in a fog before I did this. And when you're, when you're in a fog, you don't know when you're in a fog until you're not in a fog. <laughs> and so sure. they'll come back and they'll say, <laughs> wow, I, I, can, I can listen. I can think clearly. I'm yeah. far more efficient. I'm far more productive. And, and they're just celebrating because their brain is finally working. I had no idea, too. Yeah, coming out of a depressive state, too, you, you don't realize you're in it until you think, oh, wow, that was real shitty for a while yeah. there. And I didn't realize it. And now I'm feeling better. Oh, yep. That's incredible. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, part of what I do when I'm seeing adults who have been treated but not successfully for some of these other conditions like anxiety or depression is, as they say, I look at their school. And I, and I also look at other conditions that we know occur at higher frequency mm. in the adult population with ADD versus not. Major depression, bipolar disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder. The highest risk is social phobia, 
and substance use disorders. And so when I see this pattern and I'm seeing some of that show up in a person's life and they're not responsive to the traditional therapies, the psychotropics that are prescribed by physicians, I just wonder, are we missing something? And it's easy to go through a structured interview for this. I normally follow that up with a neuropsychological test because... That helps to increase the confidence of the conclusion of this is ADHD because more likely than not, it's going to influence the, the behavior of the frontal cortex more so than any other region of the brain. And that's typically what we're going to see. Which is where you said that the most reactive area and state of your brain with ADHD Right under yeah. those cats. That's where it's it's yeah. impacted, and you know, and depression is going to impact that frontal cortex, and PTSD is going to impact that oh. frontal cortex as well. Oh. So there's a variety of things that are also going to impact that limbic system. Yeah. You know, and you know when you have the ACEs, your limbic system is altered, and you're much more likely to have that amygdala light up. You yeah. know, and yeah. fire. You know, with either fear or yeah. anger. You know, oh. much more so than the general population. So the whole brain has been altered by those those experiences, and that's why we have to fight back with building resilience. And, you know, we are amazingly adaptive. You know, we have the capacity to overcome a lot of adversity. And if we're committed to it, the outcomes are pretty favorable. Mm. And we have the resources and the support behind us to do so. Yeah, support is really important. Yeah. Yep. I can't thank you enough for enlightening us and, and at least bringing this to the table so we can think more about it and be more more conscious and aware. Sure. Niente, yeah. as they say in Italian. <laughs> Very good. Wonderful. Well done. Thank you so much. And thank you to my listeners for your patience and our return. Thank you to the movement uh, for the use of the song Rescue. Everybody, stay safe and stay motivated. Thank you.